We are beginning a new sermon series this evening. Um, I would recommend it to all your friends. It's called How to Wreck Your Life. I'm sure that will just bring everyone. Um, You often come to church to go like, how, what are the five things to make your life whatever, you know. But we're going to do a sermon series on how to wreck your life, and we're going to take a look at things that our culture goes, you know, that's the thing. That's the thing. And it's, it's not that those things are bad. It's just that when they become disordered, that is in the, the wrong priority, then it wrecks us. Like tonight, it's about make it all about family. Family's great. I'm for family, right? But if that gets disordered, if that gets in a place where it doesn't belong, it gets off. And, and we're just going to kind of walk through those things uh, this evening. So that's, that's where we're going. My youngest son does not live here. It's a point of contention. Um, he lives up in Seattle. Okay, so I have to visit Seattle. It's not that bad. And if you've ever been in Elliott Bay, Elliott Bay is actually the body of water that is to the west of Seattle. If you're ever in Elliott Bay and you're looking at Seattle, it's a really lovely skyline except for one thing, the Alaskan Viaduct, the Alaskan Way Viaduct. Uh, so a viaduct is, I mean, imagine a, a bridge, like maybe a train bridge that goes across the valley, so it's there are all these big right columns and then this bridge goes across and it's just just this horrible scar that's there and someone in seattle began to think we should get rid of that and we should build like a tunnel and to get from the stadiums to the space needle without doing it we'll do a tunnel underneath and we can get rid of this alaskan way viaduct which is just ugly believe it or not they're doing it now the problem was selling the voters on this tunnel uh, because this tunnel was only going to be $3.1 billion. And the problem wasn't so much just the $3.1 billion. The problem was the people in Boston who also have a Highway 99, they did something called the Big Dig. Now, projects are known for cost overruns. My favorite is the Suez Canal. Um, it was, what's estimate, it was actually built for 20 times the cost of its estimate. If you've ever seen the Sydney Opera House, right? Sydney Opera House. If when you think of, of Australia, you probably tend to think that's a vision. You've seen it in Disney movies, I'm sure of it. Um, it, it. Its estimate, it was built for 15 times the estimate. So the Boston Big Dig um, was to be 2.8. It came in at $12 billion. It took, it was eight years over schedule, eight years late. So the poor people in Seattle who really like this idea and are trying to sell it to the constituency, the people against it are just going, yeah, well, remember the big dig in Boston, right? And so the people in Seattle were very attentive to the fact that 3.1, and what do we need to do? And there was a major hiccup, this major boring machine, this huge machine had got stuck. And it would create a two-year delay. Um, It actually came in not at 3.1, but at 3.3 billion dollars, because they had really paid attention to what they needed to learn and what happened in Boston. It was three years delayed, but it's open, and they're destroying this horrible viaduct. They're just getting rid of it. Jesus is going to talk to us in the scripture that we have today about counting the cost, the importance of counting the cost. Um, that we're attentive to it. And I don't think that's a one-time thing. I think that's a kind of a daily thing in terms of following Jesus. Now, Jesus is doing this in chapter 14, and chapter 14 is kind of my favorite. I, I envision Jesus doing what he's doing, and, and some guy who's kind of trailing Jesus, trying to help Jesus build followers, kind of like a social media person. 
and, and watching Jesus do what Jesus needs to do. So Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 14, is invited to go to a person's house. Now, I'm going to say a word that mo- anyone who's been a Christian would see this as a negative word. But you need to remember this word was not, not a negative word in those days. This group of people were respected. I mean, a lot of respect for these folks. Jesus was invited by a Pharisee to go to his home. And that was a, that was a big deal. And Jesus, of course, is open to hospitality and is making his way to the Pharisee's home on a Sabbath, which is a day of no work, and Jesus sees this guy with dropsy. Now, I'm sure right now, besides the nurses, no one knows what in the world dropsy is, and that's okay, because I didn't either. I looked it up. So a dropsy can be uh, easily explained by edema, right? So now you know exactly. No, you don't, right? So edema is just kind of this this swelling that just happens, and it's not good. And so Jesus sees this guy with dropsy, and he heals him on the Sabbath, which is a big no-no as you're going to a Pharisee's home. And I can just imagine the social media person going, Jesus, what are you doing? And and they're watching it, and and Jesus kind of knows what the religious folks are thinking. And so he asks a simple question, hey, just imagine. Imagine you had like an animal or a kid that fell into a well. Which of you on a Sabbath would not get them out of the hole? And they don't know how to answer the question because they know how to answer the question, right? You get the kid out of the hole. I mean, that's just what you do. So they make it to Jesus' house, and I mean, to this Pharisee's house, and Jesus is now beginning to notice what people are doing, and he sees how people are choosing the choice seats, and he makes this comment, hey, when you go to a party, when you go to a party, don't sit at the place of highest honor. Sit kind of lower, because if you sit at the place of honor, people might come to you and go, ah, hey, this seat you're in, that's kind of reserved and we need you to sit down there. But if you sit in the seats that are kind of lower, they might come to you, hey, we, we want you to sit up here. Now, that's a really cool lesson that Jesus is teaching, but I think it's a bit awkward he's doing that at a party where everyone's listening to him, you know? But if that doesn't top it all off, he then looks at the host and says, hey, when you invite people to a party, can you imagine that saying to your host? If you invite people to a party, don't invite your friends, your neighbors, rich people, people of influence. I just, I, this, I imagine this poor social media person just going, seriously, what is he doing? But Jesus says, no, invite instead the poor, the lame, the blind. Invite people who can't pay you back. Because when you're sitting in the kingdom, you'll be rewarded for your righteousness. Now, I'll just be honest with you. The people I invite to my home are typically neighbors, friends, people I love. So Jesus says these things, and I got a ways to go. But I do from time to time try to make sure I'm at a lunch with people who can't pay me back because Jesus tells me to. So after all of this, a large crowd is following Jesus. So I mean, I'm now at this point, the social media person's got to be really happy. Jesus, I think we're up to like 1,000 followers. This is so great. Except Jesus does this. He turns to this large crowd following him and he says, well, let's find out what he says. We're in the 14th chapter at the 25th verse. Listen. Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower 
does not first sit down, estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, <laughs> this fellow began to build and is not able to finish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we thank you that uh, you're really not interested in just making people happy, but in speaking truth. And we thank you that you um, invite us into the kingdom. We thank you that you invite us into your kingdom, and we pray that you would help us. We want open ears this evening. We want eyes that can see, but really, God, it's our hearts. Our hearts are the issue here. So we pray that your spirit would fall upon us, and you'd speak deep within us, and you'd help us to hear your words. Amen. I missed one thing. So Jesus says this thing like, who to invite and and uh, boy, your, your reward in the kingdom at this table will be incredible. And someone says, bless are those who are at the big feast. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah. There was this guy who threw a big party. He threw a big party and he sent out servants to tell everyone, everyone that things are ready. And all these people are invited. The first guy says, ah, gosh, love to come, but I've just bought some land. So I can't tell him, give him my regrets. The next guy says, I just bought five tractors. Actually, five yoke of oxen, but that probably doesn't make any sense. I just bought five tractors, and I need to check them out. And the third guy goes, I just got married. And the person who's invited these folks is like, seriously? And says to his servants, hey, invite blind people and lame people and poor people. And the servant comes back, we've done that. There's still room. He said, just go out and compel people. And Jesus is trying to say God's like that. God is like opening up this huge feast for us. And here's the goofy thing about invited people. We have excuses. We say things like, I, Jesus, I would love to do that, but I got to do this. And the thing about this host is he's going to fill the table. And we might give excuses, but he's going to go find other people to fill the table. It's just something he's going to do. And so what happens? A large crowd follows him because they realize the openness of Jesus is huge. Jesus offers you and you and me this huge invitation, always gracious. But he also tells us there's a cost in following him. The gift is free, right? Come, it's a great meal. But there's a cost. And he says it in some pretty dramatic ways. If anyone comes after me, they have to hate their father and their mother. Now, for some of you, that's pretty easy, right? Let's admit, we have some people who are like, that's not really a challenge, not really a fan of my mother and father. I like mine. I don't hate them, right? So you're thinking, well, I'm doing pretty good because I already hate my parents so I can follow Jesus. That's really not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not actually saying this. He's doing something known as hyperbole. He's overtelling something to make a point. But our parents can be a focus for us. They can be focused in one of two ways. Either they can just be like too much of a good thing, which I find is rare amongst adults, or they can be such a focus of our kind of energies. Now, my parents were decent people, but I will admit there were periods of my life where like I wanted to settle scores, not like bad scores, but like I wanted to settle scores. I wanted to remind them of things that they needed to apologize to me for. 
There are just certain things they needed to remember. And by God's grace, there came a day where I realized, interesting, I wouldn't do this with anyone else my parents' age. I just let them be adults. Let them have their own memories, their own failures. I just let them be who they are. And so I began to do that with my parents, where I would, I would voice a memory and I'd share something and they, they wouldn't remember it that way. And instead of me trying to help them fix their memory, I'd be willing for them to have a different memory. In certain ways that I felt like they said some things like, really, you said that? When I brought them up, they like, ah, and, they, and I just let them be where they were at. Because we can spend too much time on parents, one way or the other, positively or negatively. And Jesus says, don't get consumed there. Now, Jesus cares very much that we honor our parents, that we figure out what that is. And again, my parents were okay. Yours might have been brutal because there are such things as brutal parents. And each of us has to figure out what that looks like. Parents can occupy too much space in our heads. Now, the next thing Jesus says, you have to hate your wife and your kids. Now, if you're single, way to go. You are already not even dealing with this thing, right? I mean, you're like, you are ready to all on for Jesus, way to go. And, and, and I, unfortunately, the church has this thing that I, I call the marriage heresy. The church has this thing where I've, been in, I've seen churches where it's like marriage is kind of like the thing. If, if, you're, if you're a good person, you're going to get married and be complete. And you'll have kids. And, and I think to myself, where are they getting that? Now, you can tell I'm a big fan of marriage. 40 years, I'm, I'm for it. I'm a big fan of marriage. But you don't need marriage to be completed. You don't. And you don't need marriage because, like, you're destined for it. No, it doesn't work that way. You see, the goal of life is not to be married. The goal of life is not to have sex. The goal of life is to love and to be loved. Because if you have to be completed, if you have to be married to be completed, what do we do with the Apostle Paul? Right? I mean, is he kind of less human? Or maybe Jesus. We'd have to wonder about Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus didn't get married. What's his problem? What's his deal? But somehow we kind of, I've watched the church kind of create a value, a kind of a prioritization for married people. And that's not how it works. So single people, you're heroes. Way to go. So married people, hate your wife or your husband. Hate your children. That's interesting. I don't know if you saw the Wheel of Fortune guy this week. Big, gnarly beard. Uh, it, it was hysterical. Let me see if I can find his quote. Pat Sajak, for those of you who don't know who the host is, asks this guy, and this guy's name is Dave, Blair Davis, and he says, he is introducing himself, he says, I've been trapped in a loveless marriage for the last 12 years to an old battle axe named Kim. She cursed my life with three stepchildren named Star, Ryan, and RJ, and I have one rotten grandson. You know, it kind of sucks the air out of the room, and then people realize he's just kidding. It's just his very strange sense of humor, words I've never used about my wife, right? So, or intend to. To hate your wife, what does that mean? Well, again, it's that thing of disordered loves. The best way I can love my wife is to love God. If I love God, I will love Gail better. What do I mean by that? Well, Let's say I choose to love Gail first. Am I really loving Gail or am I loving the expectations that I want Gail to fulfill? 
I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you've been in love with someone or you have a really good friend, you kind of have expectations for the other. This is a guarantee I can make. If you can't let your expectations die and allow the other to be the other, that relationship will end. Because no one wants to live up to expectations. They just don't. They want to be who they are. We've been married for 40 years, and she still surprises me. There'll be times I'm like, really? Seriously? And that's great. Because who wants to be married to the exact same person you were married to 40 years ago? Right? I mean, you expect some growth, some change, some movement. She's done that quite well. To hate your wife. Well, you see, if I love God, God says things like this to me. And he does. Tom, she said, take out the trash. Go for it. And he says things like that to me. Tom, you're being, um, I'll make a nicer word, jerk right now. Go say you're sorry. Tom, you're not paying attention. Turn off the TV, look at your wife, and listen. He'll do that. She'll do it from time to time too. But he will say those things to me, and I'll realize I need to do it because if I love God, I'll learn how to rightly love her. But my favorite is love kids. If there's ever an age where kids are close to idols, this is the age. I can say to you, let's do it for the kids, and I'll probably win the argument. You can do that in our culture. Well, it's for the safety of children. Oh, well, safety of children. Well, of course we have to do it. I'm for the safety of children. Please don't hear I'm not for the safety. But I could use the safety. Okay, well, we have to do that. But what happens amongst parents right now is they're kind of like camps. I don't know all the current camps. So let me tell the two that did exist. There was the attachment camp. The attachment camp is you've got to be really close to your kids. And the mom will know when the kid no longer wants to breastfeed because the kid will wean themselves. And you just are always present. Now, there's the baby-wise camp. And the baby-wise camp is we're going to train that kid. That kid is going to learn to sleep when it's the right time to sleep. And this is the way it's going to be. And, and, and these kind of like become two religious units. And so this group looks at this one, well, of course your kid has a problem because you never really attached to you. And that's your deal. And this group looks over this one and goes, well, of course your kid never sleeps. You never like set a boundary for them, right? But what happens in the midst of that is it becomes a form of righteousness. Have you noticed that parents have the ability to use their kids as righteousness? I'm not against Instagram. Instagram can be one of those ways that I can demonstrate what a great parent I am. You probably have friends like that. Like, it's, their parenting's amazing. Look at this one. Look at this one. Look at this one. And it's really a form of righteousness. And these camps are a form of righteousness. And, and maybe spending $500,000 to get your kid into USC is a strange and weird form of righteousness. Seriously, you were on full house. How are you spending $500,000 to get your kid in USC? Come on, you were so wonderful. I mean, that was just the character you were acting, okay? But you're like, you look at that and you go, what's that about? What that's about is I get my identity from my kids who go to USC and they're a success. Or I get my identity by showing you I'm this goofy parent. Righteousness doesn't come from parenting. Righteousness doesn't come from your children. Righteousness comes from loving Jesus, and he offers you forgiveness. Because I'm a screw-up as a dad. My kids didn't come with instruction manuals. And so the first one, you can ask Luke, I made lots of great mistakes on Luke. I just tried my best, and like, well, that was wrong. 
And most of those mistakes you realize like 10 years later, and you're like, oh, I probably should never have said that, right? Those sorts of things that happen. I can't get righteousness from being a parent. I can get righteousness because God will forgive me. And, and the righteousness and forgiveness he offers me as a parent and offers to parents is such a gift because parents, parents have problems. And the chief problem for parents is that they had parents. And we're just passing stuff on. And we're doing the best we can. But man, if you're trying to get your righteousness from fixing it with your folks or fixing it with your wife or your husband or your kids, that's, that's going to kill you. But if you love God first, here's an interesting thing about God. He gives you back your wife or your singleness or your children or whatever those things are. And he says, hey, take those things. They're mine. But be a good steward and love, will you? Will you love? What Jesus does in all of this is really suckers us in. Because what he's done is, ah, I hate your hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children, your brother and sisters. We're all like, whoa. And then he says the worst, hate your life itself. And we're like, huh? And he says, whoever does not carry their cross cannot be my disciple. So if you, you know, if you're kind of aware of Christian symbols, cross is not a big deal, right? There's one right there. That was not a normal thing to say. It'd be me like saying, hey, make sure wherever you go, you carry a noose with you. Like, what? You make sure you're followed by a firing squad. Excuse me? Take a lethal injection syringe with you wherever you go. What? That's what Jesus is saying. It'd be like, what in the world? Remember, Jesus has not been crucified yet. He's not saved the world through a death yet. But he's saying something profound to us. To follow Jesus, there's a cost. Now, Here's what it costs you, everything. But the reality is you're going to give up everything at some point, right? I mean, statistically, you're going to die. It's just, that's a statistic that can't be beaten, 100%. It's going to happen. So you can choose to give up everything when you die or everything now. There's a guy named John Oros who did um, ministry. He ran a church in Romania during the communist years. Not a good time to be a Christian. And people, just to show up at a worship service was a big deal because people would notice you were there and that could be trouble for you. I mean, no one was, as far as I know, there's no informants in this room cataloging, oh, look, they're in church. But that was an issue. So when people would come to John Oros after a worship service and say, I want to become a Christian, he'd say, no, you don't. He's kind of picking up Jesus stuff. No, no, you don't want to become a Christian. Why? Because it's hard. Well, no, I really want to become a Christian. Okay, we're going to do a three-month catechism class. Catechism, uh, we're going to teach the faith for three months. So at the end of three months, people say, I want to be baptized. And he'd say, no, you don't. Because tomorrow when you get baptized, you're going to get up and you're going to say you love Jesus and you're going to be baptized. And in the room will be informants. And if you have a job, you may never go any farther in your job. Or you may lose your job. And your friends may stop being your friends. And your family, your children, if they're trying to like climb the ladder, they may not want to be yours anymore. You don't want to be a Christian. He said, it's fascinating to watch the faces of people who go, you know what, 
I will give up everything because Jesus is my Savior. He said the beauty of those faces is powerful. It doesn't cost us a lot to be a Christian here. It's not hard, right? No one like looked weird at you because you drove in here, unless your car is ugly. But I mean, no one, no one did that, right? So a fellow named Jim Dennison, to kind of underscore this point, says he's in East Malaysia. He's a pastor in Texas. He's in East Malaysia, and the 16-year-old comes forward, and she wants to, wants to be a Christian and wants to be baptized and professes her faith, and she's baptized. At the end of this worship service, Jim Davison's talking to the pastor, and he goes, that was really incredible. What are, why are there two beaten-up suitcases over there? Oh, and the pastor points to the gal who was just baptized. Her parents told her, her dad told her, if she gets baptized, don't ever come home again. That's a cost. And people have been doing that for years, and it's really costly. And Jesus says, hey, it's costly to follow me because you got to worship me first. And that's how it goes. Now, the reality for a lot of us, we're probably not going to ever have to face what was happened to Christians in Romania or this gal in East Malaysia. So reality for us is probably there's probably like, imagine this, this is $100,000 and this is all you have. It's your total net worth. And we, we tend to think of following Jesus as we walk up to Jesus and we like place it before Jesus and we're done. But it's not really that way. It's more like Jesus takes the $100,000 and then he hands it all back to us in singles. And the rest of our life is like, we just have to start taking our lives like, oh, the neighbor kid wants to talk to me. Oh, okay. And here's like, Lord Jesus, I'm, again, I give you my life. Here's $2. And, and then you're with this homeless guy who's just, who needs attention. You're like, oh, yes, Jesus, here's like $5. Right, Because a martyr spends it all at one point. It's all gone. Here's $100,000. I'm dead. It's over. But most of us have to live lives for decades to come. And it means just all that we're holding, all of these singles from Jesus, and we're like, oh, yes, Jesus, this is all yours. Oh, here, here's some more Jesus. And so there's a cost every day. And I can't figure out what you want to do with your cost. It's something I wrestle with. I really like Jesus a lot, a lot. Jesus has been very good to me. And I think Jesus has been quite good to you. But you get to figure out what you want to do with your life. You get to figure out whether you're going to hate your mom and your dad and your singleness or your spouse or your children or your brothers and sisters, your life itself. You get to figure out whether you're willing to take a cross every day and, and really, that's a daily thing. It's a cost we kind of like, oh, that's right, today, new day. All right, Jesus, yeah, yeah. All right. There's a, a story I want to read well. About 11 years ago, Barry and Mary Beth Mosier and their kids, they were, they were missionaries. And they, were, they get in this plane in the Congo and they talk with their 14-year-old and the 3-year-old because they want to go visit their 24-year-old. And the plane, the, as it's going down the runway, one of the wheels blows out. And so it fails in takeoff. And it crashes, lands in a marketplace. 
and it's just engulfed in flames. And the 14-year-old girl, April, who speaks some Swahili, sees this guy trying to get through the fuselage, and she goes up to help him, and, they, and he pushes her out, and he gets out, and they get some people out, and it's just it's horrible. And 30 minutes later, she's in a hospital, and she just thinks, well, my family's dead. And the parents um, did not die, nor did the three-year-old. The three-year-old suffered a fracture right here, which means for a three-year-old, a full-length cast from here to, like, here. Great thing to put a three-year-old in, right? And, and they strangely, delightfully, 30 minutes later, they're reunited. And the father said this, when we saw each other at the hospital, I can tell you it was a grand reunion. We couldn't believe that our family of four could all escape a plane, plane that was crashed and on fire. But by God's mercy, we did. We actually came here to see whether we should move to the Congo, so it's been kind of a rough introduction. I think we'll keep praying about that. We know that the safest place to work in the world is where the Lord wants you to work. I buy that. God may call you to be a missionary in the Congo. That just may be his deal for you. God may call you to go live in the poorest part of Maricopa County. That may be his call for you. God may call you to do something that doesn't look so dramatic, but he gives you $100,000 in singles, and he wants you to spend it all for him. And you just live a life that exists in denial and for the cross, for the goodness of God. God has a call in your life. And it's a call that begins with a huge invitation to the table. A huge invitation to this kingdom banquet. Fantastic. And if you're anything like me, I have an ability to come up with excuses to God. I'm masterful some moments. But deep down, I really want to say to the Lord, okay, I'll take the $100,000 and I'll try to just keep spending it for you every day, wherever you want. Would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon me that I could do that? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you We thank you for a 16-year-old who would pack her bags because she understands, she understands the cost and she understands the wonder of you, the generosity, the graciousness, the beauty of you. And we marvel at her. And we wonder at her. And we want to we wanna walk the same pathway as her. Thank you for missionary uh, family, God, that would see the safest place to be wherever you want them to be. And we thank you for people who live, well, we might say mundane Christian lives, but faithfully for you every day, spending it all for you. 
God, we, we want to be people who respond to your goodness and grace. And we, you know us, we got lots of excuses. I mean, we just don't count the cost. We're often, often just laying foundations and not building towers, God. But we know you to be gracious and good. So would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us? Would you remind us of your beauty, your goodness, your grace? And would you help us this week to follow you? To put you as our first love? And that would you do wonderful things through us that we could, we could brag on you about? Because we know this isn't, um, this isn't something to keep to ourselves. This is such, such good news. So, would you do that? We're so glad you listen. Amen.